0: i want to um, begin this morning, as I did the earlier service, with just um a few words about um, what we are facing as a country and a nation. Uh, it fits within the context of first Peter, and I think you'll you'll see that in a moment um, but as as I'm just struck by uh, the events that have happened over the past couple of weeks, um, you know kind of really starting with uh ahmad Aubrey and then um, culminating with the um, horrific murder of george floyd um, you know it, it leaves us um, leaves me heavy hearted um, leaves many of us confused uh, uh, th- these issues uh, when you start talking about solutions to these issues, they get complicated and one of the things that I want to say as your pastor um, is that two things can both be true. And I think we lose sight of this sometimes as a people. Um, the, the murder of uh, two black men is evil. And the uh, assault of police officers is evil. Both of those things can be true. We don't have to choose sides on those. One of the things that as I am a father and looking at how to um, talk to my children about these things who ask uh, very good questions is that, you know, one of the things that in my own personal Bible reading uh, over the past, uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, I'm doing a Bible reading plan by an, an old dead guy, uh, McShay's Bible reading plan, where you're in four books of the Bible at the same time and... um. Normally, a psalm, an Old Testament book, uh, a wisdom book, or a, a prophet, and then a new testament book what 's interesting is so i am uh, I am finishing up the Pentateuch uh, and i 'm also in Isaiah and one of the things that strikes me in moments like these is over and over again in the Pentateuch, as the law was given, the people of God are commanded to look after and to take care of and to watch over those who are marginalized among us. Over and over again, this is this command is given. It's amazing how often it shows up. And then when you go over to the book of Isaiah, what you say, see in the book of Isaiah is that the people of God are being punished. And one of the things that shows up again in Isaiah is that the people of God are being punished for not fulfilling their obligation to look after those in and among them who are in a vulnerable position. And so as Christians, as Christians, as John was saying earlier, um, as believers, um, we should have a place in our hearts and in our minds of looking at injustices and um, calling them for what they are, I think one of the things that happens is that um, too often than not, um, instead of looking at things through a biblical worldview, um, there's a temptation to lean back on a political worldview when we see an issue arise in our country. And it becomes problematic because at times our, our political view trumps our Biblical worldview, or or those two things get intermingled in a, in places that they shouldn't be intermingled. And and I want to say on the outset, I am a person who has political views. Um, I vote in certain ways, and I vote with conviction. However, however, um, there are times that 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 we need to be able to again, once again, turn off maybe the news and turn off some of the political pundits, and really look at what the Word has to say. And I'm so thankful that John referenced earlier Revelation to where we will be spending eternity as one people, diverse but one, together worshiping God. And until that day comes, there's going to be a longing in our hearts as we live in this imperfect world. But I think we should be a people that are constantly in prayer. And um, I think events like these should serve to remind us that things are not like they should be, and they one day they will be resolved but 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 we're not there yet and um it should cause us um, it should cause us to pray it should cause us to pray it should humble us and cause us to pray um, I've talked to several folks this week, and um, over the past two days conversed with a couple of folks and um One of the things that happens when you sit down and talk with someone who may be different than you is that uh, you begin to empathize with what they're going through and the emotions that they're going through. You may not always come to the same conclusions about how do we solve these problems, but I think as believers that as we sit with brothers and sisters in the Lord that uh, may be African-American uh and, and maybe because of our position we don 't completely understand everything that these events culminate in uh we, we we you know we would do well to to stop and to pray and to and to empathize and um you know as I say this it 's interesting because we um we are not a very diverse crowd, however, there is some diversity in 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 and among us. Uh, and so as as we stand and proclaim god's word and talk about these sort of issues um, uh as watching uh some of our members of our congregation have african American children. Um, some of members of our congregation are of a different ethnicity. Some of the members of our congregation are in law enforcement or retired from law enforcement and so I guess just what I want you to hear from me uh as 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 your pastor. Um, we're not going to have all the answers, but as we see the world go into chaos, we need to be reminded that our hope is not in this world and in the political structures of this world, but our hope is in God. And our hope being in God helps to motivate us to live in such a way as we were given by Christ to come and live in a certain type of way. This is the point of our text this morning. If you've been with us in 1 Peter, uh, what's been happening is that the whole book of 1 Peter is written to a people who are marginalized, aliens, exiles. They've been displaced from their homes. They are in this region that is not uh, where they were from. And Peter is writing them to encourage them and to... Uh, and, and to, to to help them to learn how to live in such a way that the main things become the main things, the proclamation of the gospel, the glory of God. And over the last couple of weeks, several weeks ago, um, uh, I spoke on uh, verse 13, starting in verse 13, where Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority. And we talked about that the authorities... The authority in this particular day and age was Nero, who was this pagan, horrific king. And so we talked about how as a Christian we could submit to those type of authorities. And then last week, um, Gary uh, preached on servants, be submissive to your masters. Again, what 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 was in line here, what was thought here, the thought process is that these servants who were enslaved to these masters who were were not believers and as servants, how can you live in such a way that is informed and is motivated by the gospel because the gospel changes everything and then, as we get to today, as we get to today, it's not as if Paul or Peter here is just changing the structure and changing what he's doing. Peter as we get to today talks about in the same way chapter 3 verse 1 you wives be submissive to your own husbands again Peter is telling us as Christians how we who have been changed by the gospel can live in a world in a world that does not display the same type of reality that the gospel produces in us. Think about it. Galatians three twenty-eight. Let me let me read it. I quoted it earlier, but let me read it to you. Galatians three twenty-eight. A verse that's familiar to you all. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is fantastic and this is wonderful. But the reality of the world, and this is what Peter is calling us to, the reality of the world that we live in, is that, let's be honest. We are Christians and there are still male and females. Right? You didn't become genderless when you became a Christian. The point that Paul was saying is that in view of Christ, in Christ, you are all one body. And, and Paul, and here Peter, says, but in this world, as you are living in this world, until you get to glory, you are going to live in structures and in a society that sees things in a certain way, and the gospel can inform Form how you live, and the gospel can help motivate us how to live in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. And so as we're going today and we're looking here at this text, I, I want us to see and maybe come at this passage from a way that you've never uh, come at it before, and I think it fits within the context of wives here, uh, who are marginalized according to society of how they can fulfill their roles. And it gets actually very specific. Now, I want to point out something to be very clear about something that I hope was I was clear about in the first service, and that's this. If I was going to just give a message about gender roles in the Bible, my text would be Ephesians 5. okay, Because that lays out Christian home, um, uh, Christian men, Christian women... What are your roles? How are you to do this? Um, and go from there. In this passage, you're going to see that you're going to you're going to get some of that. Particularly here, there are six verses addressed to women, one addressed to men. We're going to talk about why that may be in a moment. But in this passage, uh, if you're here and you're or if you're watching and you're a a Christian wife, you're going to glean. Uh, from this passage, some things that 's going to be helpful in your marriage, but what I want you to see right off the bat is that this this message, I think, was primarily written uh, to wives who had unbelieving husbands. Look at verse three uh, chapter one uh, chapter three, verse one. in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word and that phrase disobedient to the word. It's reflected from earlier in 1 Peter, uh, which means they were an unbeliever. So we can say, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if they're unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the behaviors of their wives. And then what happens is that Peter goes on and lists what the behaviors should look like so that that wife, in fulfilling these things, might, that God may use her godliness for that husband to become a Christ follower. So the main point this morning that we're going to see is how the gospel, how hoping in God should motivate Christian living. As we've already read this verse and you see from the very beginning, it says in the same way, I think this is pointing back to verses 21 through 25 of the previous chapter. Listen to how how Peter inserts this here and then afterwards gives these Directives to, to wives and then husbands it says, For if you have, been call, you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leave an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. Notice this. Notice this phrase. But He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. That our example of Jesus is that Jesus as He was walking in this world and as He was marginalized and as as Jesus Himself was wrongfully condemned and convicted, that Jesus, the King of the universe, humbled Himself and became a servant and He did this by entrusting Himself to the One who judges righteously, And He Himself, verse 24, bore our sins in His body and on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. And you were, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. So, so, so Peter here is talking to wives and he's saying, like Jesus, you wives... And then he goes into their behavior and he says, be submissive. Now, I want to just lay out some things at the outset. A couple of things. Notice, first of all, it says this a little later uh, in uh, verse 5. Notice it says, be submissive to your own husbands. I grew up in a time when we were coming out of a church age where I think it was expected for wives to be submissive to, to every husband that was around. Peter's telling these wives, be submissive to your own husband. Now, um, just like in these other things that we have talked about, like uh, when we talked about obeying every human institution, there is a limit on submission. Obviously, if I, I feel like with everything that's in me, that if, if a woman is in a place where she is being... Uh, physically abused, that she needs to get help, and we have structures here at the church to to help with that. I I also think that if a husband is, uh, uh, if submissive to him means causing her to sin um, or causing her to deny the gospel, that Peter's not calling her to submit to that. A good example would be is if a Believing spouse is convinced that, uh, that they need to have five kids and the non-believing husband thinks it should only be three. That's not a place for non-submission. Okay. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk through this a little more. But we've got to come back to what is the issue at hand. And so what I want you to realize and what I want you to see here is that you have a wife... A believing wife and an unbelieving husband now this would have caused major issues in the greco Roman world major issues we 've got to think biblically, meaning we 've got to think about the day and time in which this was written and and there was uh, society has has changed over the years in this day and time, according to the Greco-Roman world, wives were not seen as um, uh, people worth dignifying and honoring. A lot of times, by the way that they're written about, they were seen as property. They were seen as as things. Um, Many times, not even to be seen or to be heard. So what happens, think about this, when a wife somehow hears the gospel and becomes a believer and is living in a home with a man who is an unbeliever. Major issues because women in this day and age were expected to follow the gods of their husband. When you got married to a man, you were expected to follow the gods of your husband. Your friends and your relationships were were set up all around the husband and his friends and his relationships. To become a Christian and not to follow those gods and to, to be a part of, of something some kind of movement of the way of Christianity could very easily be seen as a shameful thing on the husband. And so wives, how do you live as a Christian in a way where there's potential to bring great shame and dishonor on this husband? How do you do this in a way where you can continue to live out your faith and stay in good favor with your husband. And I think the call here in many ways is to be a... and this is very simplistic, but Peter is calling Christian wives to be a good wife. And we're going to see what that means. Now, I want you to hear this. Um, Some men... uh, When they hear this call of wives to be submissive to their husbands, they view it as a a license to control and manipulate and abuse. And what I want to be heard very clearly said this morning from me is that any man that would attempt to control and to manipulate and abuse his wife is not a Christian man. Whereas a man who does not understand the call of the gospel, and we will see that later on uh, when we get to verse Seven, but I want to say that um, from the very outset of this. Now the point, again in this verse is that the wives live in such a way that their husbands may be one without a word. And the first question that we have to ask is that, is this even possible? Can a husband be one without a word? I want you to go back in chapter one and look at verse 17, not 17, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. So that we are born again through the Word of God. Not per someone's behavior, but through the Word of God. Verse 25, But the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this the Word was preached to you. So what Peter is not saying is that somebody can be saved outside of the proclamation of the gospel. What he is saying is that these women, their lives should be their greatest evangelistic tools towards their husbands, and as they hear the reason for the hope that is within them, and the reason that they can live in the way that they are living, and they hear the gospel, that they might be won by that word and the testimony of their wives. Let's continue forward and march forward because what you see is this, so that they may, they may be one with the word by the behavior of their wives. And notice, then Peter goes into how they do this. As they see, so as they, unbelieving husbands, observe your chase and respectful behavior. Now, one of the things that's interesting here, and this is huge in understanding this text, is that... I. The translation here, respectful behavior, um, this is actually the the word that's been used very often in this letter, and actually the word is fear. Fear. And I'll tell you where it pops up, and you will hear the theme here. In chapter 1, verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges to each one's work, conduct yourselves, he's talking to all people, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on this day of earth, and we talked about this word fear can mean uh, reverence, respect, awe. That we are to—that's how we are to relate to God, right? But this is the same word. And then again, in chapter two, verse seventeen, honor all people. So remember, we talked about this about three weeks ago—that we are to honor all people. We are to love the brotherhood. We are to fear God and honor the king. That there was a distinction here that the fear, the awe, the reverence, the respect is due to God and God alone. And then a little later we'll look at this again, but look in our text in chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So Peter is not here saying to live in reverence, fear, awe of the husband. Or he would just contradict himself a sentence or two later. What Peter is saying, wives, live in reverence, awe, and fear of God. And out of that, out of, out of that respect and awe and reverence to God, let that motivate your behavior towards your husband. One day, one day, in when you get to glory, when you are answering for what you did, you are not answering to your husband for your behavior, wives. You are answering to God. And let this motivate you to love in a certain way. Now, you may ask, okay, well, what does that look like? And then Peter goes into... Uh, 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 these next two verses. In the first verse, he talks. he's talking about adornment, outer adornment versus inner adornment. And so firstly, uh, he says, here's what not. And, and I want you to notice a couple of things because this verse is often misinterpreted. Your adornment must not merely be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, real quick, there's nothing wrong with wearing dresses, there's nothing wrong with wearing gold jewelry, and there's nothing wrong with braiding your hair. Okay? The actual Greek where it says putting on dresses would it's actually translated putting on clothes. And nobody over the course of time has interpreted this that women shouldn't wear clothes. Well, nobody's interpreted it that way. So Peter can't be talking about you can't wear jewelry or get your hair done, right? What Peter says, and that's why I like the translation here, don't let it merely be external. Okay, And so the idea is that wives living in this home with this unbelieving husband, don't try to draw him in with just the outer appearance and the outer stuff. Your adornment shouldn't be merely that. He he narrows in and says, let this be what what defines you. This is what's going to draw him into the gospel. And I love these phrases here, but let the hidden person of the heart, which is, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And I just want to real quickly hear and talk about these. and We could spend so much time here. The hidden person of the heart. If we were to go to the book of Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 16, it talks about um, that all of us, that the inward man is to be built up by Christ. That inside of us as believers, there is an inward person, and what Peter is saying here to women is to say, "Hey, that inward person, the hidden person of the part of the heart, with the imperishable quality. One of the things I love about this is that oftentimes in this book, what we have seen is that Peter is contrasting perishable versus imperishable. In chapter 1, he starts off this way by saying our imperishable inheritance versus perishable gold. And so what Peter is drawing these wives into is focus on what is imperishable. And so, what is it? What is it? One more thing before we get to what it is. Not only that, but he says this, and this just lands on me as such a blessing. Look at the last phrase. Whatever this is, it is precious in the sight of God. Some translations say it is very precious. Oh, don't you want God to say that about you? That who you are and what you're living out, that it's very precious. And you may say, okay, well, what is it? And that is this. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, we're going to come back to this in a second, but I just want to say a word here. This does not mean uh, that women are to be uh, church mouths. We know that phrase. Uh, seen, not heard, quiet, no opinion, this sort of thing. If that were the case, Peter would say a gentle and quiet mouth. What does Peter say? A gentle and quiet spirit. And so what I want you to be asking yourself is, what in the world does this mean, gentle and quiet spirit, and how can I have that? Or how should these women have that? And so we're going to, Jump to that in a second, but I want you just to follow the train of thought, because what we're emphasizing this morning is how our motivation, how our motivation uh, informs how we live out our roles within the home. And so the first couple of things that you see that Peter is telling us that this woman, these women should do is that they 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 make. They must have the view of their husband's salvation in mind, that that's the motivation. That they must have this awe and reverence of God. That that God and His glory, that He is the one that we are trying to please and His glory is what we are trying to live out. And number three, it's just this desire to be seen as very precious and pleasing to the Lord. Now, as Peter is doing this and as he he gives us an example, uh, kind of two groups of example, or a group and a specific person, so he's talking about here's what it should look like. And then he says, For in this way, this woman, these women, in this way, here's an example, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And if you have become her children, if you do what's right, without being frightened or any fear. And, and a couple of things I just want to point out here. Is one is I think that this is a reference, Uh, Sarah. Reference here to Genesis chapter uh, eighteen, and uh, notice the reference really quickly, Um, starting in verse ten. He said, Surely I will return at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now, what's interesting here is that, so it's describing um, how women should live a chaste um, and quiet, um, let me get my words, gentle and quiet spirit. And it uses as an example Sarah. And what's what's interesting in the Bible is that there are at least three instances in Genesis where Abraham obeyed Sarah's leading. In this reference, in and of itself, uh... This isn't the greatest way to put forth Sarah. And I think what I think what Peter is driving at is that even as she is verbalizing doubt here, that she is respecting her husband as she is verbalizing this doubt. But that her attitude is towards her husband. Uh, honoring his position and loving him in certain ways. So the key is that women can and should be opinionated. Women, we're not calling women to be robotic. Um, what the text is laying out is for them to respect and to love their children. Now, how is it, and what in the world is he talking about then when it says a gentle and quiet spirit? And and I want to point towards three things very quickly. Notice as it gives, for in this way, verse 5, former in former times, holy women also who did what? They hoped in God. And what I want you to see, and then compound that within verse 6, it says, if you become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And I think it's very clear the connection that Peter is making here. And what he is calling these women to do is to Put your hope in God. And when you put your hope in God, there's no reason for any fear. And if you don't have fear and anxiety, your spirit is what? Quiet. Your spirit is what? It is gentle. He's saying, women, hope in God. And as this quiets your spirit, as this... Quells any sense of anxiety. It allows you to live a bold, brave, and fearless life as you hope in God and live counterculturally in such a way that you are displaying the love of Christ to your husband that he may be one. And if we get this backwards, if this is not our motivation or your motivation in the home, whether it's with an unbelieving spouse or if you're living with a believing spouse and your hope is not in God, wives, but if your hope is in your husband, you will be filled with anxiety and fear. Because your husband is not God. And so you may be anxious about How to please him or how to do what is right according to him or all these other things or uh, uh, trying to keep him happy. And if our hope is in our husband and his reaction or your husband and his reaction, then you could be filled with anxiety and fear. Certainly, if your hope is in this world that you'll just have this picture-perfect great marriage by following these um, uh, things that are laid out here, then, what you're going to find is that you are going to become very anxious and very quickly when your husband does not line up with what the Bible would want him to line up and do because your hope is in him and your hope is in a formula, and when your hope should be in God. So, all right, I need to move very quickly here. Now, as we're looking at this, and as we're looking at these women and they're supposed to be submissive, what I want you to see is that this in no way is denoting or, 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 or pro- propagating any sense of inferiority. That women in the sight of God, there's no sense of inferiority there. There's, they're valued the, We're valued the same. There's, it's not pointing towards a, a lack of knowledge or a, a weakness in character or a weakness in giftedness. In fact, As we see, many of the women of the Bible, we'll get to that in a second, but how strong they were and how they were used by God to do great things. But what's interesting here is that it's it's calling wives to submit. And remember that I'm saying that I think this is um, spoken because Peter is going through this thing of these marginalized people in society. All of a sudden, we have six verses to women. And I did this in the first service and it worked. And then one verse to man. And you may say, what in the world is going on here? Why is it laid out this way? And here is my thought. And it makes complete sense if if this is the way that you interpret this passage. And that's this. As Peter is writing this letter and he's writing to marginalized people, one of the things that he knows, right? he can't guarantee that the authorities would be reading this letter. So when he says submit to authorities, he's speaking to a marginalized people. He doesn't address authorities because... He assumes they're not, they're not Christians. They're not reading this letter. As he's speaking to servants, he doesn't say anything about masters. And I think because he's assuming that, they're, that as he's talking here about unchristian masters, that there aren't masters reading this letter. However, when he's speaking to wives of un- non-Christian husbands, he also knows there's this audience in the room of these men who have this power according to society and uh, the, the way things went in this day and age, and he's very careful to speak to them. So it's almost like he just takes this short little break and speaks directly to them. And notice how he speaks to them. Likewise, again, referring back to Christ, who came, Christ was the King of all, had all power at His disposal, and yet He came as a servant. He says, likewise, you husbands... Verse 7, in the same way, live with your wives. First of all, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, the words here, uh, it's not just um, like live in an understanding way, try to be compassionate. The wording here in the original language really gives off the connotation of this intimacy that in order to really live with our wives the way that Peter is calling us to live with our wives, husbands, we have to know our wives. This goes right against any kind of notion that it's the husband's job to make money and send it home. There's a deep, intimate care that Peter is calling these husbands to. You are to know her. Secondly, notice this. You're living with her in an understanding way. As someone weaker, or as the weaker vessel. And um, it's interesting how we interpret this. I think there's two potential ways. Now, in Greek, it, it gives force a weaker um, container is the actual uh, phrasing here. I think a vase, and so I think there's two potential interpretations. One could be, and I think is very valid, uh, as a physically weaker person. Now remember, remember when this was written, there was no CrossFit, right? No CrossFit. There, there are. There are women that could kick most of our tails in here that probably are within our church, okay? But as this was written, by and large, and it's still the truth today, by and large, the way that we were created, we are more of the physical domineering stature. And so what it's saying, one interpretation could be, so men, live with them as the weaker vessel where you're not using your stature, your strength, to be little. Uh, I don't think this is talking about uh, that they're weaker emotionally or in intelligence or anything like that. And all throughout the Bible, we get these wonderful stories of, of, of women like Lydia who did so much for the early church, uh, and she was wise, she was rich, she was very um, savvy and she had a church in her home. We see these women in the book of Romans at the end of the book of Romans that Paul writes to. We see Mary and Martha uh, who were very strong women. So I don't think it's talking about weaker in those ways. The second possibility, and I think this is the one that I kind of lean on a little bit more, is that if we take the context into consideration that husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, because according to society, she is in the weaker position. She doesn't have the rights that you have. She, doesn't, she can't obtain the stature that you can obtain. She can't live the way that you're living. You husbands, according to society, are set up in a certain way, and your wife is not in that position. And so what he's saying is, husbands, live with your wives knowing this, Knowing this, and notice then what he says. Since she is a woman, live with her in this way and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. (laughs) This would have been scandalous in this day for a husband, knowing that his wife is in this weaker position. Because of the Gospel, and because the Gospel has changed him, that he no longer looks at his wife as a thing or, a, or or a tool of some sort, but he begins to look at her as a co-heir of the grace of Christ, and that he is commanded to bestow upon her honor. Uh, there's one book that our small group has been reading, and one of the, this metaphor, uh, you know. Falls flat at some point, and I know that, but just the the main point I think is 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 great, and that 's this it says to, to when it's talking about to husbands this book and loving your wives, it says, remember, remember that your father in law if you 're married to a Christian is God and i don 't know about you, but i my father um My father, any young man that wanted to date my sister, my dad sat down and had a talk with them. And uh, um, we would, my brother and I, would sneak downstairs and like hide because it was hilarious to watch these young men squirm. As and but one of the things that my father, one of the things that my father would say to these young men, um, is just remember, whatever you do or think you want to do to my daughter, you're doing to me. Because she's mine. I think this is part of what Peter is saying here and part of this whole idea. Your wife is a co-heir with you. And this is massive. So, so the way I think this sums up is this. You've got these wives and these unbelieving husbands and they are to hope in God and to live in such a way that their behavior and that their loving and honoring of their husbands displays the Gospel so that the, so that the unbelieving husband may see the behavior and say, what is the reason for the hope that's in you? And I think on the backside that as Christian men, that we are to live with our wives in such a way and we are to order our homes in such a way and to love them in such a way as co-heirs of the grace of God That the outside world looks at our home and says, What is the reason for the hope that's within you? The gospel changes everything. Now, I want to end with just two words of uh, encouragement. Um, One is that I am very aware um, that there are, we have several wives within our congregations who are trying to fulfill this, living with husbands who are unbelievers. And I think that we, as their family, need to encourage them, that we need to be people who are often encouraging them. I can't imagine how difficult that would be. I've I've seen it on some of their faces and, you know, just a rips your heart out. Um, and so I think we should be encouraging to them and to, coming alongside and encouraging them to hope in God and to live in such a way that that, that could happen. And, and on the other side, um, as some of you men uh, may have listened to these verse, you maybe have just been convicted on how you've been living out your role as a husband in your home. And what I just want to say is that we are all imperfect, and, and the reality is, is that that's okay. As one pastor said, you just can't stay there. And so there's movement, and part of what we want to be about as a body is to come alongside you and to help lead and guide in that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would continue to create in us to be a people that when the world looks at us, what they see is that we are people who are transformed by Your Gospel. That our inner person is being so changed that we all have a spirit inside of us that is not anxious or frustrated, but rather is hoping in God and that through that it motivates us to live out our calling in a way that is radical. God, help us. God, we love You. And we thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.